Um, we are going to tackle as much, actually, as equal amount of verses as we did last week, although I'm not going to read them all at the beginning like I did last week. I am going to read it. It's still a fairly lengthy reading, but if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 12. We're going to begin in verses 21 to 23, and then we're going to drop down and read verses 28 uh, through 42. Verses 28 through 42. So Exodus chapter 12, 21 to 23. Just to bring you back up to speed, if you uh, have missed or uh, God, it's God's people have been enslaved for 400 and about this time, about 430 years. Um, And he has called Moses to be the one who will lead them out. God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He has prophesied and said, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. I'm going to free you from enslavement. And so Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who, who is this God who, who would command me? And as we saw last week, God makes war. God is a warrior God against Pharaoh and Egypt and against the gods of Egypt. And we saw that in the first nine plagues last week. And this week we come to the 10th plague. And I'm simply going to read the account of what happens on, the, on this day. That it's fairly famous in biblical history. We're beginning in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves to your, according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, it's a type of branch, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel. It's not the bean, it's the side of their doors and the door to door post with the blood that is on the basin. Now, if you should go out of the door of his house, ha- none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two door posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Then drop down to verse 28. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, and so they did. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great outcry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, but they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was even leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they left them with what they asked." Thus, they plundered the Egyptians and the people of Israel journeying from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. 
The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. Well, um, my favorite musical album of all time begins this way. The first song of the album, and I can hear it very clearly because I listen to it all the time. The first line of the first song of the album says this, gather around ye children come and listen to the old, old story, the power of death undone. God, um, you ever wondered why God gives us so much stories and why the Old Testament seems to be chock full of them? I actually have a book by one of my professors in seminary in which it's simply it's about how to interpret the Old Testament. But the title of the book is simply, He Gave Us Stories. He Gave Us Stories. We have a God who is a storytelling God. And then, not only does he tell us stories, true stories, of what he has done in this world, he then backs up those stories with rituals and feasts to remember the stories he has already told us. You see, God is, tells us stories, and God then gives us feasts to retell those stories because God understands something about the human heart. We forget very, very easily. Now listen, there, is, there are many things that, we, that help us remember things we've learned. But usually, usually stories are the best ways. You ask somebody what they remember from a sermon. Well, the illustrations. In fact, when I was a youth pastor, at the end of youth talks, we'd go to conferences, and then you were supposed to go, and we would, we would have, a, supposed to have a conversation, and I would never ask my students about what the point was. I would say, just tell me what the illustrations were. And from there, we would work back to what the point was. Just tell me the story. Just tell me the stories. Because we are a forgetful people, and so God is doing everything he possibly can to make what he wants to communicate about himself and his movement in this world to be memorable. He wants us to remember, remember. In fact, if you were to look throughout the Old Testament, one could make a, a part of the story of the history of Israel as a story of remembering or forgetting. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, Moses is looking at the people of Israel, the same people of Israel, second generation Israel, who are about to enter the promised land. He says this, take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. What is Moses telling them? He's doing the same thing my favorite album says, right? Gather around, you children, come and listen to the old, old story. Judges chapter 3, if you read the book of Judges, it is a cesspool of immoral degradation by the people of God. The people of God are supposed to be different and holy and lovely, utterly radically different than all the rest of the nations of the world. And in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, it says this, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord have you ever read the Psalms? There's a number of Psalms that actually, 
They're very, very long, and they'll, they'll go through kind of these old, old kind of, they tell the story in poetic form, in song form. It, it almost reminds you, if you've ever read like The Hobbit, in which it's like elvish songs. That's what the Psalms seem to be. It's like telling these ancient stories, and then, then the psalmist will say, and yet we have rejected the Lord. He has been so faithful over and over and over again. Psalm 78 actually speaks about the very Passover and the God's deliverance of Egypt, and then it says, but we have forgotten we have forgotten. We have not remembered. And so God wants the people of Israel to remember this account of what he did to deliver them from Egypt. This is their salvation experience. This is going from darkness to light, from enslavement to freedom. This count was never to be forgotten. In fact, this is the story of the birth of their nation. Everything was to center around this event. You would actually read in this account, if you were to read all of chapter 12 and 13, one of the things you would see is that everything was to center around this event. Their whole yearly calendar, he said, now your year begins with this. This, we're switching it up. We're starting over again. The new year begins with the Passover. Their parenting was supposed to center around this event. What's the one command that parents are supposed to have? Tell your children what I did by delivering you from Egypt. Their rhythms of doing life all throughout their year was centered around this event. Their identity as a nation, all the calls and all the commands of God, all the laws that he would give would center around this event. And so it is for the Christian that our exodus and our Passover is Christ on the cross which leads church historian Claire Davis, actually as a man, who describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I love the line. He says this, I know I've forgotten this before. I know I have forgotten this before. You see, many of you have grown up in the church. Some of you haven't. This idea of Passover has even pervades just general culture and society, these images. I know I've heard this before. I've forgotten this. And so what do we have to do? We have to retell the old, old story. And God gives us three feasts, actually, not one. You know, most people make a big deal out of the Passover, and that is the central, the central feast that comes out of this. But if you were to read all of chapter 12 and 13, there's actually three rhythms or three feasts or festivals, three activities that Israel's to put into their life as a people. Here first is the consecration of the firstborn sons. We'll get to that in just a minute. Second is the Passover. And third is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so we're going to reflect on what happens in the Exodus and on the day of the Passover when God enters Egypt and strikes down the firstborn and sets his people free using each of those three liturgical rhythms God gives his people. The first is this, and the way God helps us to remember, consecrate, consecrate that means set aside, consecrate the firstborn son in order to remember what we deserve. Let me dive in. I didn't read this earlier, but let me point you to chapter 13 and verses 1 through 2 and then dropping down to verses 13 through 16 and hear about what this festival or thing that the Lord calls the people of Israel to do. It says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. This is Exodus 13, 1. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Then drop down to verse 13 to 16. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. 
And when in time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? Why are we redeeming? Why do we have these sacrifices? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt and from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. And therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that firstborn that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, and for a by a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Now, why? What is the deal with this? This is one of those Old Testament things that we'd really rather forget. That's here. The consecration of firstborn sons. Notice that God has commanded them. The key word there is to redeem the firstborn sons. The firstborn animals, they are to be a sacrifice of worship to God. But the firstborn sons, they are to be redeemed. Now, what does it mean to redeem? It means that something is, has to be bought back. It has to be purchased back. It's something that we owe to God. The firstborn sons were of incredible importance in the ancient Near Eastern culture. As men, there were in, in Israelite culture, they were in every other culture, that they were seen as the center and future of the family. As the firstborn son went, so did the rest of the family. The firstborn son represented the rest of the family. All their hopes for their family rested in the firstborn. And the point of consecrating and setting aside and saying, God, the firstborn child is yours, is symbolically to say that God, our whole family belongs to you. Our whole life belongs to you. And over and over and over again in the Mosaic legislation we'll see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God says the life of every firstborn is mine and you must redeem it. Every year when there was a child who was born, they had to take shekels to the temple. There was a redemption price on the head of every firstborn of every family. And the life of the family was forfeit. The life of the firstborn son was forfeit unless they purchased his life back. Now, redeem is to free from a debt or the consequences of a sin by a payment. And I want you to hear what God is saying and establishing this practice among the people of Israel. What he is saying very clearly is this, is Israel, you owe me a debt. You are mine. You are mine and you owe me a debt. You deserve penalty and consequences for your sin and for your unfaithfulness just as much as Egypt owed me a debt. So what is God saying? He's saying the lives of your firstborn sons are forfeit just as much as the lives of the firstborn sons of Egypt. As representatives of you and your family, because you're sinners, you all deserve to die. And therefore, your children, as your representatives, their lives are forfeit unless they are redeemed, unless they're bought back. This is God's way of coming and telling the people of Israel, as he had been teaching them for years and years, that all human beings, even though he says, I created you, and you have lived as if I didn't create you. You have rejected me. I am the creator of all things. I own all things. I possess all things. And yet you have said to me, I don't care. I don't, we don't want you, God, to be our king. And so like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. That's why they had to have a lamb. God doesn't say, I'm going to come and destroy the Egyptians and you guys are okay. No, you won't see the power of the Passover unless you first see that, no, you're not okay. 
If I show up and there is no blood on the door, I'm taking your kid. I'm taking your son. And that same night that God brought death to the house of the, of the, the houses of Egypt, he would have brought death to the houses of Israel as well. God was sending an unmistakable message, and that is that there is a debt that is, must be paid by every family on the earth because we are owed God's wrath and his justice. Here's what I want you to see is you will not see the importance of the Passover lamb and the beauty of the Passover until you submit yourself and actually embrace the difficult task, the painful task of submitting yourself to the understanding of what you deserve from God. What do you deserve from God? And until you come to a place where you reject our cultural mindset, which is this, that God is simply unfair for doing this, but instead get un- embrace the mindset of the Bible, which says, if God takes my firstborn son, it would be just. If he takes my life, it would be just. You know, one of the, the, the accounts of the Bible that has made apologists and philosophers for century after century wring their hands and pull their hair out is the account of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And this is the place in Israel's history where the son is connected to a lamb in which God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, yes, I want you to take the promised son, Isaac. Take him and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. And what baffles people who read this is, you know what we never see from Abraham? He doesn't go, God, you can't tell me to do that. He doesn't go, God, that is so unfair. He doesn't go, God, you're a monster for asking me to sacrifice my child to you. You know why, why, God did, or why Abraham didn't think that? Because Abraham had embraced the idea that he, everything in his life was from God and that he deserved God's wrath. Abraham does not struggle with the injustice of God asking him to sacrifice his child. What Abraham actually struggles with is this. God, you are just. And if you are just, then that would mean injustice I should have to give you my son because I am sinful and I am unfaithful and I have not served you the way I ought to serve you. And so I should have to give you my son. But God, you promised. You promised that this is the the promised son from whom a, a lineage of mercy and blessing will come from. And so the issue for Abraham is not whether God is being unjust in this, is whether God is going to keep his word in this. The question is, God, I know you're just, and justice would say I have to give you my kid, but what about your mercy as well? And so the question before God by Abraham as he's trudging up the hill with Isaac by his side to sacrifice his son is, how in the world is God going to be both just and merciful as well in this moment? And as he's walking up the mountain, the emotional peak of the count, Abraham, Isaac, and Genesis 22, they come to verse 7 and 8, where Isaac is moving up the hill with his father, and he says, Father, the wood, the fire, the knife, all the things for the sacrifice are here, but where is the lamb? And what is Abraham's response? Abraham looks at his son and says, the Lord will provide the lamb, my son. What Abraham is saying in that is saying, I hope with all my being you will not have to die for my sins, though I would deserve to lose you, son. With all my being, I hope that God would be merciful and that you will not have to die for me. Isaac, Isaac, my little lamb, oh, if God would provide a lamb in your place, it would show that he is merciful. And so here's what I want to ask. 
When God brings difficult things into your life, when you look at the passages of Scripture like this, where God's justice reigns down, I think we have a, a visceral reaction, even to looking at the Egyptians who had just caused genocide upon the people of Israel, and we go, this doesn't appear to be fair even to Egypt. That God would strike down the firstborn sons of Pharaoh and even the handmaiden and even the prisoner. What kind of God is this? This is an unpopular line of reasoning. It violates our mores today. We read of this, but we forget and we will never understand what the Bible says about us until we recognize that we are not innocents. We were not born innocents, and we have not lived in an innocent way. We are guilty before God. And sin is not merely the commission of awful crimes like genocide and holocausts, but sin is loving anything and serving anything more than you serve and love God. Say this out loud to yourself. God does not owe me anything but justice. He doesn't. By God's standard, we are all guilty people, and we all stand, stand under God's judgment. The only wages God owns, owes us is death. That's all he owes you. So what is really unfair, if we're actually going to talk about fairness, is that you woke up this morning, that you keep breathing, that you went into your child's room. You ever had that moment of premonition in the living room? You're sitting there one night, it's a weird thing. It's the fear we have as a parent, right? The thing we, and we go and we check our child's breathing. My child is still breathing because God is merciful. We, tend, we can tend to think that only people who do terrible things deserves God's judgment, which is why God's judgment bothers us so much. Here's why. Because we presume that we're innocent. And we are not. In fact, the most famous verse in the whole Bible has this. We just skip over it and get to the good part. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish. Jesus was so clear that his world needed saving and what they needed saving from is from his father's judgment of this world. And this is so distasteful to us, but the death of our children and frankly all of us is what we deserve. And so Israel was put, is put in the life of their pattern every time they had a child. Every time they had a son, every time they'd go to the temple, a rhythm in their life would remind themselves of this. I deserve God's judgments. I deserve it. Me and my family deserve the wrath of God. They would take their boys into the temple and they would pay a substitutionary price and they would look at their consecrated child and the face of their child and like Abraham, what they would learn to say is, God, we need a lamb. Would you, would you be merciful? Where is the lamb? would be substituted for my child. So have you learned to submit yourself to the just God who is, who is say, saying that we must understand his justice so that we might plead for his mercy? You would cry over your child's life, God, would you be merciful? God, where is the lamb? What rhythms have you put in your life? We like happy rhythms. This is a tough rhythm. God, I deserve death. Oh, God, we need a lamb. Would you remember? He puts a whole practice in the life of Israel to remind them of this truth. So that's the first thing we need, to remember what we deserve in the consecration of the Son. Maybe every time we see a baptism, 
Every time we see put our kids to bed, what do we deserve? The point is that the firstborn of every womb belongs to God, but in the case of the Israelites, what's so beautiful about this story is the substitution is found. The second thing we have to see that God gives us in this is the sacrifice of a lamb in order to remind us what we receive. There's what we deserve, but then there's what we get. There's what we deserve, but then there's what we receive. God's judgment did not fall on everybody in Egypt, and it did not fall on every firstborn in the land because God provided a way of escape, namely the sacrifice of a lamb. God comes and says, you are under threat of death, your firstborn, but I'll tell you what, my judgment isn't going to come down on your child's. Your only hope, though, will be a little lamb. And the ritual is spelled out throughout Exodus 12 in a various couple of places. I'm just, instead of going and reading it, let me just kind of give you some of the nuts and the bolts of celebrating Passover that they were supposed to do with clarity and simplicity. First, they were to choose a lamb. He would have to be a year old. He was to be without blemish. He wasn't going to be sick or, or limp or disabled. Second, they were to take the, the lamb into their home for three days. And then on the 14th day of the first month at twilight of the day, they were to slaughter that lamb. You understand what's going on here? They would bring Fluffy into the house for three days. And the firstborn son would get attached to the lamb. And then dad would pull out a knife and the kids would go, hey, what's that for? And he would say, bring Fluffy here. And the son would say, wait, he's my pet. And the dad would say, it's you or him. It's you or him. Then third that they would take is they would take the blood of that lamb and they would take a hyssop branch and they would spread it on their door. And fourth, they would then eat the lamb's flesh along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and they would get themselves ready to leave Egypt. And God said that when I see the blood, when I send my death, my destroyer into Egypt, I will pass over your house. And they were to celebrate the Passover every year. For how long? Forever, forever. Because what are they being reminded of? They are being reminded of in the Passover of what actually saves them. You see, this is so important in the life of Israel. Is Israel being saved because they're, such, they're just so morally superior to Egypt? Are they being saved because they are so much more righteous than those terrible, idolatrous Egyptians? Are they being saved because they're the victims and the Egyptians have been so mean to them? Is that why they're being saved? No. What saves them? Not their righteousness, not their ethnicity or race or their uh, status in this world. And it says this in Exodus 12 verse 13, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's the only reason while they live. What was so important about blood? There's all this talk in the Bible about blood. We sang songs about the blood. What is the deal with the blood in the Bible? It is so gross and it's meant to be. This is a bloody mess. Why blood? Because it represents the taking of life. The life is the payment. And blood throughout history has been representative of life. And therefore, what the blood signified to the Israelites is that they had to have a substitute whose life was actually taken who the lamb who had died in their place, and that their sin was a capital offense to God, then God was coming in judgment, armed with a deadly plague of destroying their children and their households, and yet the lamb, his life would cover for them. And the blood was representative of it. And by the death of the lamb, the salvation, their salvation was accomplished. God is saying the only way you can be saved is through, not your own righteousness, 
Not through your law keeping, not through who your, who your daddy is, but through the blood of the lamb. Because these little lambs have died, your children don't have to die, and you don't have to die. And so they knew they owed a debt. We owe a debt to God because of our unrighteousness, because we've rejected God from the beginning of history until now. And so we owe God a debt, and either we pay the debt or somebody else pays the debts. But what these people are not naive. They did not think that killing an animal, a lamb or a goat, would actually take away their sin. They understood that this was a symbol. The Hebrew writer brings this out in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It says this, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What we needed and what the Old Testament screams from beginning to end is, we need a lamb, but one who is better than fluffy. Fluffy can't cover my sins. What we needed is an efficacious sacrifice, something that actually, that is a life for a life, that is a human life that covers my human life. And this is where we enter the Lamb of God provided by God himself. You see, in the gospel, what are we offered? We are offered the Son who is called a Lamb. Don't you know that the first thing that is said about Jesus when he walks on the stage when he's 30 years old is this? In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the connection between the Passover feast and Jesus, it's almost as if all the gospel writers, the whole reason why they're writing, in particular John, it seems like the only reason why he's writing his book is to make connections between the Passover and Jesus. Let me just walk through some of them. The Passover had to, of lamb had to be free of blemishes, and so we had Jesus who had said over and over and again, who lived a sinless life, so that his sinless life, so his righteousness could cover over our sins. He had to have no sins, and so 1 Peter 2, 22 said this, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And earlier in 1 Peter, it said this in verse, chapter 1, 18, 19, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The parallels go on. The Passover lambs enter the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover, and Jesus enters at the very same time. The Paschal lamb dies on Passover day, and so Jesus dies on Passover day. No bones of the lamb were to be broken, it tells us in Exodus 12, verse 46. And John goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus, his legs were not broken on the cross. Every, every, even the very plant to which Jesus gets when he is thirst is what kind of plants? Jesus says on the cross, I thirst, and they go and get him vinegar, and they pour it, and they take it on a, on a sponge, and they put it on a hyssop branch. And at the Last Supper, Jesus makes it, in case these things don't make the, the parallels clear, at the Last Supper, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he said, see this, this is my body, and this is my blood. Jesus is saying the Passover is all about me. I, I am the sacrificial lamb. You see that when Abraham and Israel for all those generations say, oh God, would you provide a lamb so that my sons don't have to die for my sins, that God's answer is to provide his lamb, to provide his son in our place. And so God the Father like Abraham who is trudging up the mountain and his son asked, I see the knife and I see the wood, and I see the fire, but where is the sacrifice? So God the Father trudges up the hill of Calvary, and his son cries out to him, and he says, I see the sacrifice, and I see the fire, and I see the cross. Would you save me from this? And the father is silence. You see, if Abraham and Moses 
were there on the day of Calvary and they were sitting there with the disciples and with Mary and others and they were to see, they would finally go, this is the lamb. This is the lamb who can really save our sons and who can cover our sins. And so the rest of the New Testament is the writers making this loud and clear saying, Jesus is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, we read it earlier in the order of worship, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It is by his lifeblood being shed, his life being taken, that we are covered over. And so the wrath of God doesn't come upon you and upon your children. Just how you know, if God ever takes one of my kids, it's not because it's his wrath. It may be his goodness to me, and I don't understand it, but he took his son And so remember, the call here is to remember the sacrifice. And so what rhythms could I call you to in your life, you Christians, by which you could remember the sacrifice of Christ? Let's think deeply. Low church Protestants, let us think deeply about what God may have given us to help us remember. Well, he has given us one in Luke chapter 22. In the night in which he is betrayed, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, the Passover is talking about me, and so this supper is now about me from here on out. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And Jesus takes up the bread, and the disciples expect that Jesus is going to say the same thing that, that the leaders of Israel, the elders and fathers of Israel have said for thousands of years at Passover meals. And he says instead, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the Last Supper, Jesus endowed the feast of the Passover with new meaning. And instead of celebrating the redemption of Israel from Egypt by the sacrifice of a lamb, it became clear that these elements now symbolize the redemption as as the sons of God who have been redeemed by the true son of God, the lamb of God. And his death is now our exodus and our Passover by which we have been set free. It is the essence of what the Lord's Supper is. It is remembrance. When we sit at the Lord's table, we are presented with a visual, acted-out drama. You want plays in church? We don't do mimes. We do a Lord's Supper. That's the play. And the play that we act out month in and month out and week in and week out is the death of Christ for us. I'd also like to say this. Week in and week out, come to church. It is so important. The rhythm of this, that come hell or high water, I will be there because why? We, some of you may wonder, why in the world do we have all these readings in our, in our scripture passage, in our, our worship order? We should just sing four songs, three songs, and get it done with. And besides, I just kind of, I just like to get in the mood by singing, singing three songs in a, in a row. And we could do that for every once in a while, but here's the point of our liturgy. that We want you to sing and hear over and over and over again, week in and week out, the story of what? Your redemption. Gather around, ye children, come. Come and sing the old, old story. That's what worship is more than anything else. It's God's people retelling the story of the Bible. And so what does Moses say that we're supposed to do with this story? Tell your children. And so bring your kids to church. This is not just some old country Baptist beating some pulpit saying, well, you've got to bring your kids to church. This is the rhythm that God has put into our lives for our good so that we don't forget. And not just your kids, probably you too. Last thing, we'll be brief. 
That we, in order to remember, we were to remove the leaven in order to remember who we are. Remember who we are. There's this thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll read about it in chapter 13, verse 7 through 9. Follow along. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread. This is essentially think yeast. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen within all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. This is a third feast or memorial of this deliverance event, and it's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread went hand in hand with the Passover. Essentially, the two were talked about in the same vein. In fact, the Passover was the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It was the first day of the feast, and it marked that beginning, and it was meant as a reminder that the Israelites left in a hurry. In other words, what it's saying is, you didn't have time to press the yeast into the bread and then give it time to rise. You had to just get going. You didn't have time to put the yeast into it, to put the leaven into it. You had to leave Egypt in a hurry, get out and be gone. And the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread wasn't to remember that they had bread without leaven. It's not to remember that time that they had crackers instead of sourdough bread. That is not the point of it. The point of it is to remember this, is that the strong hand of the Lord got them out of Egypt. It is the point to remember that they had to leave Egypt. They had to rush out of Egypt. God's deliverance was so swift and so beautiful and so all-encompassing that they didn't have time to make bread. And the feast reminds them of this. They are no longer in Egypt. The strong head of the Lord has brought them out, and therefore the, reminds them, the feast reminds them of this, that they are, they were slaves, and now they are free. They are free. They are free from enslavement, free from the enslaving ways of Egypt, free from the idols and gods of Egypt, free to worship the Lord, free to move towards the promised land. And now the Jew, what happens in the Old Testament is the Jewish teachers take up this idea of yeast and leaven, and they re, it represents Egypt and all the life of Egypt, all the idolatry and all the sin and all the enslavement, and they say, and all the corrupting influences of all the other nations, in particular Egypt, and they say, the yeast is bad. The yeast represents something bad. What makes this comparison suitable is that unleavened bread is made of pure wheat, untouched by yeast. And when God's people ate unleavened bread, therefore they were reminded to keep themselves away from the sin of Egypt, away from the sin of the nations around them. The unleavened bread marked a clear break between them and the world, the life that they had lived before freedom. It was their old life. And the same concept of the leaven or the yeast is actually used throughout the New Testament. Jesus uses it numerous times. For example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 15, he says this. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In other words, the leaven of self-righteousness and the leaven of self-hedonism. And the Apostle Paul takes up this illustration. In fact, he connects it to the Passover and goes even further than Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 and 7, it says this. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, leavens, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let me explain what he's saying there. 
Here's the context. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says that he has heard about a man who is sleeping with his mother-in-law. That's bad, in case you were wondering. And at the church of Corinth, because they're very tolerant and progressive, they don't do anything about it. They go, you know, because of grace, we're not going to do anything about this. And Paul says, what? What? He made you unleavened. He made you pure and beautiful. And you're putting up with this in your midst? Do you not see that sin will destroy your freedom as a church? You let this guy run rampage. What will happen next? God has sent us, set us free by the sacrifice of Christ, by his Passover lamb, so that we are not free to just sin all the more, but we are free from sin so that we don't have to keep giving ourselves over to it. You don't have to give yourself to the ways of Egypt. And so my question for you, when you see sin in your life, the little ones and the big ones... You are called to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, a people set aside for God. And he says, I have made you mine. And so what sins are you putting up with and going, that's just a little sin? What does he say? A little leaven destroys the rest of it. If I'm making brownies, this is a youth group illustration, but it is, it is profound. This is for middle school boys. If you're making brownies and I take a little bit of dog poo, not much, I'm not talking about like the whole thing, like a dip of it, and I put it in the batter. Would you go, you know what, I, I, I think it's just a little bit. But Paul says, no, this will destroy the life of the church. You don't put up, and it'll destroy your life. You don't put up with these things. Are you nursing a private grudge or a secret sin? Something from your old life that you have not dealt with yet. I love the way Phil Riken puts it in his commentary on Exodus. He said this, God wanting something more for his people than to get them out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And some of you have been okay with having your old self still in you. In Israel's history, their great temptation, if you, if you actually to read the rest of the story, is the temptation is always to go back to Egypt. And they do it in the wilderness, and God says, What? You want to go back to Egypt? They do it later on in their history when they have kings. And one of the things, the reason why God judges them is because in order to protect them from the king of Babylon, they go to Egypt and they say, will you protect us, Egypt? And God says, you don't go back to Egypt? That's a life of sin. Now understand this. This is no simple moralism on Paul's part. This is not, hey, Christians, you're a Christian now. Do better. That's not what he's saying. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, as you already are unleavened. In other words, what Paul is saying this is get rid of sin because you are pure in God's eyes. Because you are his child. In Christ, the people are already, it says, a new batch made without yeast. That is who you are. Do you remember who you are is what he is saying in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're not a slave anymore. You are free for righteousness. You are free. And in fact, to fully understand this, we actually have to go back to the whole account, this whole war with Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, the first time Moses comes to Pharaoh, he says this. God says this, tell Moses, Pharaoh this. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. It's the first place in scripture we see adoption and sonship. And I say to you, let my son go. Why? So that he might serve me and me alone. You are a blood-bought child of God. You are not your own. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us. 
You are his son. And he says, so go and live like it. Isaiah 43, 3 and 4. Some of you know this. You like to sing the song. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. In other words, I will give a man to redeem you and peoples in exchange for your life. In other words, what he is saying is this. His promise, his promise is I will give men to purchase you back and he did so much better. He gave his own son. And so in the old southern revivalistic way, I ask you this. Do you know the old, old story? Or have you forgotten it? And does the story, yes, so many of you have heard this over and over and over again. And you could have preached this connection between Passover lamb of the Old Testament and the Passover lamb of the New Testament yourself. But perhaps does the old, old story resonate in your heart again such as you might think, ah, I have forgotten this before. Let's pray. Lord, I think we have to begin by confessing ourselves as a forgetful, a very forgetful people. That we are a people who, um, how do they describe it in Exodus? The meat that, think about the meat pots of Egypt. And they think about the spices and the garlic cloves that they had back in slavery. Gracious God, I I think we need to call our sin and these things that are from our old life what they are. They are addictions to Egypt. They are coming to terms with the fact that we used to be enslaved and kidnapped. And in order to make ourselves cope with it, we've made the things of this world and our old life beautiful. So gracious God, we need you to rehabilitate us with new songs and new meals and new rhythms. So gracious God, would you give us creativity in our own personal life and faithfulness as a church corporately? that we would not neglect the beautiful rhythms that you have given us, the rhythm of telling the old, old story week in and week out, the rhythm of dramatizing the old story month in and month out, of remembering of what Jesus has done for us. Would it be the center of our calendar, the center of our fashion, the center of our parenting, the center of our church, the center of our life? May we never forget the love of Christ Jesus the Lamb who died for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.